Greetings and welcome to the First Timothy Sermon Series here at Good Shepherd OPC, a mission work of Cornerstone here in Houston. My name is Miller Ansel, the church planning intern who delivers these sermons on Sunday evenings at 5 o'clock. Please check out our website at gsopc.org for more information on our evening worship as well as our midweek Bible study. And here is this week's sermon. Please remain standing for our scripture reading. Uh, our Old Testament reading comes from Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 8. Proverbs 3, 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention as it is read. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And for our sermon text in First Timothy, Finishing up chapter 1, 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, and it is alive and active, so we ask now that your spirit may move in us as we listen to your word and do what it says. Let us not deceive ourselves, but let us live according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Chapter 1 of 1 Timothy ends uh, much the way it began, right after the salutation, with a charge to Timothy, the pastor of this church in Ephesus. The Apostle Paul is passing on the torch at the end of his life, and Timothy, as the recipient, must continue to fight the good fight. Paul is giving Timothy a sort of divine uh, halftime pep talk. He's lighting a fire under Timothy in order to keep the church and the ministry on the right path. Now in verses 3 through 5, Paul charged Timothy uh, to not let false teachers teach different doctrine and to avoid the myths and speculations that these men were so enthralled with. And positively, he charged Timothy to love. He charged him to love uh, the Lord and his word through a pure heart, through a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Most of those elements are repeated in our text. Uh, a good conscience, a sincere faith. 
um, along with uh, parts that aren't repeated. These illustrations of war and battle, these illustrations of shipwreck are also here. So this is what Paul's doing. He charges Timothy by repeating the initial charge, telling him how to maintain the charge, and uh, then he gives a negative example. So he uh, repeats the charge, tells Timothy how to maintain the charge, and then gives a negative example. So first, starting in verse 18, the charge is repeated. It needs to be repeated. The church is never short of false teachers and arrogant men to lead the church astray, to lead the church into destruction under the influence of demons, as we'll see later in 1 Timothy. We've seen it since the beginning. We've seen it in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers. Remember Korah's rebellion, where Korah thought Moses shouldn't be leading us. Some other people can lead. Uh, he rebelled, and uh, he was killed. Uh, we see it in the New Testament for our very passage. Hymenaeus and Alexander are examples of men who were leading the church down the wrong path. We see it in history. Joseph Smith, classic example of somebody who led hundreds astray in his lifetime, and now millions led astray. So there's always a great need for the gospel to be passed down generation to generation. So that fire stays lit under us. It is of monumental importance for the uh, teacher, for the preacher's own soul, and for the souls of his people. And as a reminder, you may not be a preacher here this evening, but you're called to emulate many aspects and characteristics of pastors. Thus, you must understand the charge to Timothy, in some ways a charge to you within your own sphere, right? For children, uh, y'all are to believe these things, believe them for yourselves, for mothers, to teach them to your children, for fathers and husbands, to let these be the teachings of their household. So much of what is said to Timothy is to be emulated by all of us. You don't get a pass just because you're not an ordained man. Of course, not everything is a one-to-one -one correspondence here. We see that uh, Timothy has particular prophecies made about him. And what this means is that others, perhaps including Paul, but there are, you know, first century prophets who received word from the Lord that Timothy was to be the leader, the minister of the church in Ephesus. We see it again in chapter 4, verse 14, that Timothy's been given a gift that he shouldn't neglect. It's been given to him via prophecy. I mean, that is some encouragement to Timothy that the Lord has spoken through various prophets that he can... Uh, be charged up and zealous for this calling that he has to uphold truth in the church. Uh, but what about today? The times of prophets and apostles have ceased. Uh, you know, when I attend Presbytery in May, nobody's going to come up to me uh, with encouragement saying, you know, I've just prophesied, continue zealously uh, in your internship, right? And nobody came up to you this morning at church and said, you know, keep leading your household. Uh, as I just prophesied. No, that's, that's not what we do. But instead, we have something just as sure, the word of God in the scriptures. We have prophecies in the Bible that encourage us the way that Timothy was encouraged by his prophecies to continue on in the truth and faith and a good conscience. And so when we are down and discouraged, maybe we're shy about fighting the good fight, as Timothy might have been, Take courage from the prophecies of Scripture. 
I'll, I'll give you a couple of them uh, during this sermon. Uh, so these prophecies are meant to encourage Timothy. As Paul says next here, uh, they encourage him to wage the good warfare, to fight the good fight. Even though Timothy has these prophecies about him, even though we have the promises of Scripture, we're tempted to be lethargic sometimes in our battle. We're tempted to be careless as we fight sin, as we fight Satan. Uh, we are constantly fighting as soldiers of Christ and what we call the church militant. It's a really cool theological word, right? The church militant. Uh, we take comfort that uh, the church militant is fighting the good warfare. We're not just fighting any old battle. Uh, Paul tells us we're fighting the good fight. Timothy's fighting the good warfare. Uh, so even though the church militant grows tired of battle, one day she'll be transformed into the church triumphant. We take comfort in that. From the prophetic words of Jeremiah 1.19, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. We find ultimate fulfillment of the picture that Jeremiah is setting up and the church's uh, deliverance from the church militant to the church triumphant and the new heavens and the new earth. So this Christian life, it's a battle. Uh, but do we use the weapons of the world? Is this a call to go out to your local gun store and stock up? Uh, certainly not. No, the Christian is not to take up physical arms to vanquish her enemy. Second uh, Corinthians Corinthians 10.4 tells us, For the weapons of our warfare are not out of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Well, what is that? Well, Paul wrote to this uh, church in Ephesus earlier in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, and he told them what the weapons are that we typically call the armor of God. And that is the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of of gospel peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So gear up and charge. The enemy is near. The enemy is always near, tempting us. Satan is always there opposing God's work, tempting us to myths and to speculations that these teachers had, tempting us to put down this sword, to shut it, let it collect dust. Satan assails us often in our thoughts and our feelings. He flies into a rage this very moment as the gospel's preached in Stafford, Texas. He flies into a rage as the gospel's preached this evening and this morning around the world. So he is there. So be ready and gear up for battle with all of that armor of God from Ephesians 6. We must attend to this Christian duty, this soldierly duty. In particular, of having a good, of having a good conscience and faith, it's absolutely necessary. Because the more we are made into the image of our Savior, the more we will be attacked. We might be given to think that, well, if I just do my Christian duty, I will have less trouble. That's how it works in the world. If we do what is right, if we do our due diligence, we have less trouble. But not so in the Christian life. The more we are made into the image of Christ, the more uh, we are conformed into our Savior's likeness, we're going to find ourselves having more and more trouble, more and more battles to engage in. Is that what you expected? Is that what you enlisted for? 
The Christian life is not a walk in the park. It's not a bed of roses. The Christian life is an assault on evil. And it will be difficult. And it will be painful. It's not to say it's without joy. Of course, the Christian life is joyful, absolutely, because we fight the good fight. The Christian life is painful. and Anyone that tells you otherwise is selling something. Right? Uh, we cannot have every day a Friday. We cannot have our best life now. Unless we're headed to hell. No, our best life is to come. And the glorious day will come. Another prophecy that we can take comfort in is Isaiah 2.4. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. That's the end of the battle. When peace comes for God's people. And so in waging the good warfare, peace awaits you. And Paul continues to light this fire under Timothy by choosing two weapons in particular for Timothy to be armed with. I've been mentioning them already. Uh, faith and a good conscience from verse 19. Uh, this faith, certainly faith is unsullied doctrine, no doubt. Um, the context of false teachers, gives us that. But also, faith is something that is personal. Uh, we talk a lot about faith. We love to say we're saved by grace through faith alone. It's all very true. Can we define faith? Children, if I asked you, what is faith? Can you give a good definition? Um, let me say, faith at base. Faith is a commitment to Christ for salvation from sin and its consequences. Faith is a commitment to Christ for salvation from sin and its consequences. And there are three aspects to faith. Knowledge, conviction, and trust. So do you have the knowledge of who Christ is and what he is able to do? Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Through, this, through his perfect life and through his death on the cross. And he will save anyone who knows this and is convicted by it. So first, we must know who Christ is and what he came to do, the Son of God who came to save sinners. We also must be convicted by it. Are you convicted of your sins? All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. And it's imperative that we be convicted of those sins. But it's also imperative that we be convicted of Christ's perfect atonement for them. We must humble ourselves knowing that things can be made right between God and us. And we need Jesus to do that, to make that relationship right. And the third aspect of faith is trust. Faith is more than just mere assent to propositions, mere uh, agreement with certain statements. Faith involves trust. Trust in a person. A person who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who saves sinners. That faith of Timothy's and your faith are a tremendous value in this good fight. You can't fight the good fight without it. Too many have tried. And as Paul says, they become shipwrecked. Sadly, not everyone treasures the gift of faith. For whatever reason, they grow tired of it, bored of it, and they turn to silly speculations. So heed the warning from this first chapter. Do not turn aside, but stay strong in the words, sacraments, and prayer. Stay strong in the faith. 
that involves knowledge, conviction, and trust. And that faith, to remain true, must be under the lock and key of a good conscience. Too many have claimed to have faith, but have a bad conscience, and it causes them to run to wicked sex. It causes them to run into monstrous heresies. Thus, faith and a good conscience are absolutely necessary for our Christian walk. It is faith that comes first. Faith gives us the legs to stand on for the battle. And a good conscience is the handmaid to that faith. See, we must consider our battle is mainly moral. As we struggle to overcome temptations to break God's moral law. And if one abandons his conscience in a moral fight, he abandons the fight. So we must have both faith and a good conscience. Others in scripture, I can give you some examples. They've tried to claim faith without a good conscience. King Saul claimed to have faith, but his bad conscience led him to worship God in ways God hadn't commanded. It led him to consult the witch at Endor. It ultimately led to the end of his life as he fought the Philistines. Another man who claimed to have faith, but a bad conscience, Judas Iscariot. The man sold out our Lord and Savior, the very one that he claimed to have faith in. In our passage this evening, Paul points out two more examples, Hymenaeus and Alexander. These were two men who did not put their faith into practice and their bad conscience led them into speculations. Okay, then, well, what is a good conscience and how do we keep our consciences free from evil speculations? We must stay vigilant. We must continue to read God's word, his moral standard that we find there. So through the reading of uh, of the word, the Holy Spirit enlightens and informs us as we read and as we meditate on it about what God has done and what he requires. So how do we keep a good conscience? Read the word. Let the Spirit work and enlighten us and stay true to the things that we read. Without this practice, our consciences will become like those we'll read about in chapter 4, verse 2, where their consciences are seared. And that leads to a departure from the faith. And so Paul tells us, verse 19, that if we want to make it safely to the heavenly harbor, we must have a good conscience. Otherwise, we become shipwrecked, he says. It is this rejection of a godly conscience that causes shipwreck of the faith, of people's individual faith. Uh, Shipwrecks are a terrible and frightening reality for people on the sea or on the ocean. Uh, I've never been shipwrecked. I've been deep sea fishing when it was probably just a small storm arose. And it's quite frightening as the waves take the ship up and then slam it back to the top of the ocean. Uh, We have stories of men who have been shipwrecked, and we know the imminent danger of dehydration, uh, hypothermia, terrible things that await them. If physical shipwreck is that bad, how much worse is a spiritual shipwreck? It threatens lives, and it can end in death. A shipwreck of faith is a disaster. Thankfully, though, it's one that a man can be brought back from. If you believe your faith has been shipwrecked, perhaps tonight you think your faith is headed that way. 
You can repent. You can trust in Christ and you'll be brought back safely. And the Lord will see you through to that celestial shore. Thus Paul's illustration shows us that we cannot reject God's morality and his theology through a bad conscience and be at peace with him. Then in verse 20, Paul gives the example of two men who have shipwrecked their faith through a bad conscience, and they were excommunicated. Sometimes we do not quite grasp the judgment of God and the seriousness of faith and a good conscience. So Paul sets these men before us as a warning. These men are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Uh, Just who were these men? They seem to be perhaps teaching, likely ruling elders of the church in Ephesus. Um, And they were leaders who the people were to look up to. Now, Alexander, that's a common name in the first century as it is today. Although it's possible Alexander is the same uh, Alexander the coppersmith of 2 Timothy that has caused Paul much harm. Uh, Perhaps more likely, many commentators are convinced he is the Alexander of Acts 19.33 who calms a riot down in Ephesus when Paul is there. Uh, But we can be more sure of Hymenaeus. He's mentioned again, 2 Timothy 2.17, as one who is teaching that Jesus has already returned Thus, the resurrection has already happened. In theology, we call that full preterism. And it's a heresy as there's no hope for a future second coming. There's no hope of a future resurrection. That's very serious. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if there is no resurrection to come, then our faith is futile. In fact, we should be pitied more than any other man. Because we are still in our sins, if that's the case, Ibenaeus. So what is to be done then? For these teachers of the church who teach heresy, such as denying the future resurrection, well, they are to be disciplined, which can culminate, as it does here, with excommunication. Now, it should be said loud and clear. The purpose of church discipline for the one being disciplined is to restore him to the church and to God. It's about restoration. It is not punishment. It is not to be done vindictively. For the church leaders, it is not fun. But it must be done for the public honor of Christ's church, to preserve the innocent from the false teachings of the guilty, and it must be done for repentance and restoration. Little today have reverence for church discipline. And leaders should not be turning a blind eye to it. Jesus Christ instituted church church discipline himself. We would be fools to ignore what our Savior has told us to do. The classic teaching on church discipline comes from Christ's words in Matthew 18. We're told that if one is sinned against, uh, if one is sinned against, to tell his brother his fault. And if he is, uh, if they are not restored, then he has to bring along a witness or two. They're still not restored. He's to tell it to the church. And if there is still no restoration at that point, then the offender is to be excommunicated until he repents. That is where we find Hymenaeus and Alexander. They have been cut off from public and formal communion with the Ephesian church and handed over to Satan. 
And the reason is so that they are taught not to blaspheme. This is interesting for two reasons. One is the comparison from last week where we found another blasphemer. And it was the Apostle Paul himself. And we see the work, uh, the Spirit's work, in Paul's life. He was a blasphemer, but is no longer one due to mercy. But for these two men, they are blasphemers and have no place in the church, let alone as church leaders. The second interesting thing about Paul handing these men over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme is that if anyone's going to teach them how to blaspheme better, it's Satan. How does that make any sense? Well, we must remember that God uses Satan for his own positive ends. As Martin Luther says, even the devil is God's devil. A good example is Paul's thorn in the flesh from 2 Corinthians 12. Paul calls the thorn in his flesh a messenger of Satan. And concerning this messenger of Satan, he writes, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul knew that God uses Satan in ways to make us reliant upon the work of Christ. It keeps us humble, and it keeps us content. That is what Hymenaeus and Alexander ought to learn as they are handed over to Satan. They should abandon their speculations. They should cling to God's word. They should cling to the works of Christ. They should repent of their blasphemy and be restored visibly and publicly to the church. So as we conclude this evening, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you uh, concerning the theme of good warfare. The theme of good warfare that our Savior Jesus Christ fought on our behalf. Our fight against sin, against Satan, and against death is not fought alone. And it's not fought upon our own strength. Christ fought it for us. Consider uh, Christ fighting sin. He was tempted to sin in every way that we are also tempted to sin. But he didn't give in to that temptation. He was perfectly obedient. And while we don't deserve it, for those of us with faith, uh, his perfect obedience is credited to our account as if we did it, as if we did not sin, as if we won that fight. Our Savior also fought against Satan in the wilderness. Remember that picture uh, of Jesus going into the wilderness, just like Old Testament Israel, the Son of God, right? The child of God, Old Testament Israel, goes into the wilderness. They're tempted to sin and they give in. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the true Israel goes into the wilderness. Satan tempts him, but he does not give in. He overcomes Satan's ploy, showing himself to be the true Son of God. For those of us who have faith in him, we are united with him so much that he is our elder brother and that his victory over Satan as our elder brother is our victory over Satan. Finally, Jesus fought the good fight against our enemy of death. After being crucified, dead in the grave, three days, he rose again, showing his power over death. 
so that we can take comfort in his resurrection. We can go on fighting because we know that we too will be resurrected as he was and live at peace with God and with man. And so with that comfort in mind, knowing that your Savior, your elder brother, has done everything on your behalf needed for salvation, I urge you, take courage, gear up tomorrow as you go out into the week with the armor of God and charge against the enemy. Let's pray. Our Lord, we humble ourselves before your awesomeness and your majesty, knowing we cannot save ourselves and wage the good warfare on our own strength. Give us the spirit to aid us in waging war and give us greater faith and a more tender conscience to act according to your word. We know you have promised to bring us safely to the new heavens and the new earth. May we believe that and rest in it. Only through the saving work of Jesus Christ can this come about. We pray in his name. Amen.